What's up, everybody? Peace. Uh, just heads up. There may be some strong language in this episode. Ooh, <laughs> some bad words. <laughs> How do you know Stretch? You know, it's so funny. I used to go to a club. He and Claude Kent were my two favorite DJs. Oh, my I God. I wish I had known this, this earlier. I would have done so much for my self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> and then when he got older, he got to be handsome. Because he wasn't, he wasn't handsome before. No, this is straight up. This is Stretch Armstrong. And my name is Bobby Garcia. Together we are the host of What's, What's Good, Good with Stretch and Bobby Dog. <laughs> That's the first time we've done that in unison. Stretch, we have, an, we have an incredible guest today. And I'm amazed that, uh, once again, similar to Lenny, and you have these personal ties with incredible people. Listen, we are both very fortunate men. We are. We know a lot of fantastic people, and we the do. great thing about doing this show is we've been able to get a lot of them in this room and sit with them and, and kind of share our insights with these people with the world, and today would be no different. We've got uh, one of the loveliest women I know, a friend of mine who happens to be an incredibly important person. Pioneer. A pioneer going back decades, the one and only Bethann Hardison. Yeah. She is a guest on our show because you're cool with her. I mean, I think she might have been a guest. Regardless. It sounds like you're surprised that, no, I'm not, I'm that not, I'm cool with people. No, no, not at all. I, I love it. I mean, you know, I'm just saying, like, you know, the, the levels of of ties that you have to this immense uh, New York and beyond community is impressive. So let's talk about Bethann a little bit before we invite her into the studio. Sure. For people that don't know, Bethann is someone that has occupied a space in fashion, although she hates that word, for many decades, <laughs> starting out as a saleswoman in the garment district. And then, then being a, a barrier breaker in the world of runway modeling and, and print. Boom. As a woman of color. A magazine editor, a fashion show booker, a model agent, someone who has mentored Naomi Campbell and Tyson Beckford. Supermodels on, on both the man and women's side. Bethann is just kind of like this maternal figure in that industry. To so many people. To so many yeah. people. She's one of the first, if not the first, black women to really, really push effectively and constructively for diversity in fashion. Sure. And she's part of a, a, a greater vanguard at this point, along with some of her other luminary friends who contribute to what we see as the image of beauty in the world. That's right. And I think if we look at fashion these days, particularly the covers of of big magazines like Vogue, even last issue with Beyonce on the cover, which was the first cover shot by a black photographer, mm. we're, I think, really seeing uh, the fruits of Bethann's labor. We're and coming up is Bethann. Don't go nowhere. You're artisan. <laughs> Some things were meant for each other. Fries and milkshakes, selfies and duck face. And now, what's good with Stretch and Bobito and Spotify? Yes, the same app that has millions of songs now also has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. To subscribe to ours, search for What's Good with Stretch and Bobito, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts on Spotify, they're streaming right now. And now... And now.
We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Sony Music Latin, presenting Grammy Award-winning artist Ile, a Puerto Rican singer and composer known for her work with Calle 13. Her debut album, Elevitable, garnered her a Best New Artist nomination at the Latin Grammys. It also won the award for the Best Latin Rock, Urban, or Alternative Album at the 60th Annual Grammy Awards. Her new single and video, titled Odio, is available everywhere now. And we are back in the studio with a woman that I just revere so much. Her name is Bethann Hardison. Wait, and I'm jealous because and you know her personally and I don't until today. So oh. Yes, well, we're going to both get to know her better. How personal can we get here? I mean, what's <laughs> like... <laughs> all right, I, I don't want to make Bob jealous. Yeah. So we're just going to keep this very NPR. Okay. And then we'll see where it goes from no, there. No, let's, let's, do, let's do us. Let's, yeah, true. <laughs> I want to know, Bethann, how do you know Stretch? You know, it's so funny. I used to go to a club. He still, I just wrote to someone that he and... And Claude Kent were my two favorite DJs. Oh, my I God. I wish I had known this, this crazy. earlier. I would have done so much of my self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you knew I used to come up to you. And then when he got older, he got to be handsome. Because he wasn't, he wasn't handsome before. No, this is straight up. No. <laughs> so, but it didn't matter. The, the loving, care, female, mother, madrina that I am, yeah. I was smitten with stretch. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Right, we're done. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've got actually have goosebumps. <laughs> he did become ha- handsome. I'm telling you, I but saw. I, no, he was handsome in his early, but his, his no, style, I, his I, haircut, I nuts. No, and it's all my fault, but then you in, you influenced. No, I used to give him haircuts in the nineties. Oh. I used to body qualify him. I used to give him a shape up. You know, he was like, "You're now, you're now Adriano." <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he was so good, and that's why I met him in a club. And I, and, and I always loved his music. I, I loved to dance, and dancing is everything. And so, he was one of my favorites. Amazing. Well, yeah. Bethan, I, you know, you've been many things in your illustrious career. I mean, you started out as a model, um, and then you eventually became a fashion activist. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I really didn't start as a model, but everyone thinks so. And everyone concludes what I am and how it was, and this is, must be your life's work, and it's not really true in that way. But I started out in the garment district. That's my claim to fame. That's my alma mater. That's what I believe in. It's the, it's the manufacturing business. And I started out in wholesale, and I started out, and then I did some retail, and then I did back to wholesale, and then I got discovered by Willie Smith, Who's Willie Smith? And Willie Smith is a designer that has passed away, but he was he had the company Willie Ware. So Willie Ware was um, was a company that everybody was just streetwear, and every you always saw Willie Ware on the street. And when Willie saw me prior to all that success time, he asked if I could become his muse. My bosses, Sylvia and Ruth, were so excited, my Jewish family. <laughs> and so when I told them about Willie Smith, they always said, oh, you got to do it. you got to do it. What is it? You should, of course you should do it. It was never about, what do you mean, you work here? No, it was never That's that. That's a great accent. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am from New York. <laughs> so at the end of the day, that's how I got started with Willie. And he believed that I could be print. So he introduced me to Bruce Weber, who was just starting. Bruce used to be a model, and then he took up a camera. No one knows that Bruce used to be a model. Bruce would take me, and we would go to a park every Saturday, Central Park, and we would shoot. 
And that's how I really slowly start. And then little by little, you know, you get out. You know, you start to move through your life. You don't even know how you got to be where you are. But I did a lot for different companies as assistant and trying to work to help them. What wind up happening at one point, a woman who had an agency called Click, she asked me to come and help her. Uh, eventually I did. And while I worked for her for two years, I then was being told, you've got to do your own thing. What are you doing? So I had Calvin Klein, Perry Ellis, different designers, friends, people encouraging me to, you know, saddle my, I don't want to have my own company. Truth be told, I'm a, you know, no one believes it, but I'm really kind of lazy. And I love being lazy. <laughs> lazy avoids all the responsibility of having to have to do and show up. You know what I mean? So to me, it was like, God, I got to start my own company. And, they, you know, you feel guilty. Then you say, well, I'm from Beppe Stuyvesant. You need to represent, you know, show up. You're one of the few blacks that are out there doing things. So you eventually, you go for it. And I started Beth Ann Management, my company. So once you got the agency off the ground, what were you trying to change in the industry? I wanted to make sure I had Latin kids. I wanted to make sure I had Asian. I wanted to make sure I had blacks because I was a black owner. I didn't want to have a Woody Allen movie, you know what I mean? I didn't want to be living in New York and then and have nothing but, you know, white kids and you never see what you see on the street. When you are successful in the white environment, you can see the difference. It's not because they're not wanting to do it. It's almost because they're just ignorant of it. And so, you know, it's ways of sort of saying things to people that sort of helps them to broaden their scope of thinking. It's an education more than anything else. It's never an accusation. And so that's where I think that, you know, you, you're able to do that. Or say to Calvin Klein or to, to Donna Karen, I don't understand why why you, you get excited about wanting me to find you one black girl. How many girls or boys are you using? 35. And you want me to find you one. But I thought you'd be happy. Well, I am. But look at the ratio. It's like racist in that way. It's not the intent. And that's how it becomes. That's how you. So then you become like this activist. You become this advocate for something that's basically mostly to educate, not to change the landscape, but you hope that's the results. So let's take it back to back in the day. We, we found this photo of you in doing research. <laughs> so cute. It's, it's been confirmed that this is you. Yes. Um, you want to know where that was? I want to know everything about this picture. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, this is such a great story. That's me trying to look grown, barred my mother's glasses <laughs> because my mother was a bar, a bar fly. And this is in Bedford-Stuyvesant. The guy let her bring me in the back door of the bar. I was seven. I said, I, I could look older. And I took the woman's glass. <laughs> like that's going to change something. <laughs> and that was around 9 o'clock at night or something. And that's the back booth of a bar. Can you describe what you're wearing here? Oh, stop it. <laughs> no? <laughs> this sounds like, uh, you know, fashion. Well, no, because people can't see this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> radio. Get it? Okay. Um, yes, okay. So I'm wearing, uh, my hair is pulled back in two braids. It's very funny. Straight back. And uh, I really have to admit, I was really cute there. And it's I'm wearing uh, these tortoiseshell, tortoiseshell glasses and a little mock turtleneck that is striped. And one of the favorite things is called a storm coat. Now, every kid had to one time, if they had a cool parent, had a storm <laughs> coat. Storm coat is like, you know, like, you know, of course it's 
to protect you from the storm. Who knew? Mm-hmm. But it always had a little like fake collar of fur around and around the lapel and around the collar. It reminds me of the, uh, the bomber, the bomber yes. jackets they used to sell on Delancey That's Street exactly in, in right. the late 70s, early exactly. 80s. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. What's curious, what I'm curious about is that <clears throat> I'm imagining uh, this is somewhere in the late 40s, early 50s perhaps, and at the time, the United States was going through a casual re- revolution right. uh, in style, particularly for kids. I mean, you know, you see photos of, of 1930s Best Eyed, 1930s Harlem. You know, kids have dress shoes on, dress pants. And then by this by this, this time... This is the 50s. Th- in the 50s. You're right. And now kids kids are wearing, like, sneakers and starting to wear jeans and starting to wear uh, white T-shirts that prior were just only undershirts for your button-down shirts. That's right. <laughs> and That's so, right. And so what what are your sensibilities with regards to that casual like where wow. did you see that casual revolution in you? You know, I never thought about what we wore at that time. My mother bought all my clothes from Delancey Street in Williamsburg area. So, yeah, there were things that were coming out then that were just very casual. And so at seven years old, eight years old, I used to take myself home from school and my mother left all my clothes out. So I should remember they were very easy clothes, you know, very pull on, very T-shirts. It's true. It was a lot of T-shirts. I always remember pull on. The kind of jeans were not too structured as they are now, um, not for children anyway. Sneakers, yes. My mother always made sure that come home and put on your play, play clothes and you take off your school clothes. So that was my story. And is that the beginnings of your fashion sense? No, you know, I never thought about fashion because we, even in the garment district, I never remember that word fashion being thrown around as it is now. That's such a pop culture word now. Mm -hmm. We had style. And especially in Brooklyn, you grew up around people who had style. You know, you went uptown Harlem. You went up to Spanish Harlem. People had their own style. I never thought of it as fashion. That's why, you know, it's, it's beyond call of duty now. King of what? (laughs) That's a reference to a a documentary from the 80s. So you attended Wingate High School. Yeah. You're you're bursting with style from your childhood, from Best-Eye, from from El Barrio, from Palladium. Uh, What's the diversity at Wingate? Oh, God, we were bust. Oh, my goodness, I'm so glad you said that. You're talking about racial diversity. Yes. Oh, my goodness, I didn't know this. I got accepted into a performing arts school, and my mother knew that was such a big thing for me. And then this white guy shows up to my high, my junior high school, 35, in Brooklyn, Bedford-Stuyvesant, and he was so cool-looking. And I'm sitting in the audience. He's talking to us kids, and he wants us tell us about this new school called Wingate. It's a banjo shape and design architect. Everything about it appealed to me. I had got accepted to one of the greatest schools for performing arts. I left that meeting that day in the school in the auditorium. I went home told my mother, said, I'm going to this new school called <laughs> It sounded so cool. <laughs> I had no idea. I learned from my white girlfriend many years later that that was the efforts of them busing black kids into white neighborhoods and white schools. And we were the first class. But I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I went there and rocked that school. <laughs> I went there. You rocked the house. I swear. I Brooklyn became, rocks the house. I became. <laughs> that was in Flatbush. I came out of Bethesda-Stuyvesant. I went to that school. I wind up first. I mean, I learned to play chess in that school. I wind up being 
first cheer, first black cheerleader. Uh, we and we played. That was a great basketball team. Then we had Roger Brown. We went to. Oh and, my God! Oh, 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 wait. oh, don't play with me. Oh you yeah. You saw Roger Brown play? He was in my. He he used to be. <laughs> we were good friends. What? Wait, hold on. Let me let me no, allow uh, allow me a no, second. No, you yeah. know. Stretch. Roger Brown and Connie Hawkins. Co- Connie. Were two of the greatest basketball players in the history of the game. I. I we're not talking about NBA. That's I'm right. Just talking about period. That's right. And, and Connie unfortunately got caught up in a, in a, a point shaving scandal. He got barred from NBA for many years. Roger Brown, for some reason, got caught up in some mess as well, and he wanted to play in the ABA. They used to call him the man of a thousand moves. This dude is a legend, and you got to see him. Yeah, but they, they, were, they, they, they were friends, friends. and so, so that's was Connie. Crazy. So was Connie. <laughs> Connie Hawkins was a friend of yours. Yes. No, that's true. We all. I was a cheerleader. Um, I was popular. The the boys high and Wingate. We we got to the I'm garden right often. Connie Hawkins is in, the, is in the Basketball Hall of Fame stretch. He's the dude that started the whole dunking craze, basically. Yeah, that's right. See, and and when you're a kid, you don't know nothing. They're just another kid friend of yours, right? Being in Wingate was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I mean, really, going to high school was great. I lived with my father. Then I went to live with my dad when I was 12. I left my mother and my grandmother. And uh, my father was an a imam. He was an Islamic leader. And so I had to embrace um, Islam and embrace also the, the education that he had. He was a very important man. He really did a lot of things for a lot of people, too. Um, that's how I got to know Malcolm X. My father influenced a lot of people. And so it was really living that life. Of I love 12. how she just yeah. throws out, like, no, uh, Roger <laughs> Brown, Connie Hawkins, Malcolm X. <laughs> Between this and, and Lenny Kravitz. Right, right, exactly. It's That's like true. before you're 17, you've already rolled with, like, three of the most powerful people. Yeah. Okay, wait. So speaking of powerful people, we need to talk about the Battle of Versailles in 1973. What's known in the fashion world as the Battle of Versailles. It was a landmark show held in France back in 19. 19- 1973 that finally put American designers on the map. On one side was the long-established French designers, and on the other, Americans with a secret weapon. Elmer Lambert and Francois de Laurenta, which was the former wife who's deceased of Oscar de Laurenta, decided to do uh, a charity event to build up the uh, Hall of Versailles. The 17th century Palace of Versailles in Paris apparently has fallen victim to termites, worms, and leaks. And those who want to save it say $60 million is needed. So last night, a lavish fundraising party and fashion show was held at the palace for 650 invited guests. Eleanor being uh, very prominent as a PR person for most of the designers in, in America, she came up with the idea, why don't we invite five American designers with five French designers, come together and do a big fashion show and invite everyone. Great idea. Sounded good. Uh, what happened is that when the French and French media got a hold of it, they began a big laugh. <laughs> American designers, come on. Foolish Americans. <laughs> 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 Who are these fools? <laughs> compete with Sorry, us. Ridiculous. Co- compete? <laughs> well, the, the word was never compete. It was just, no, just let's just all get together. Little by little, because the press, the media at Paris started to speak badly about the Americans, designers, you know, like, they're just sportswear people. They don't make clothes, beautiful dresses like what our designers do. And so the French designers, and I hope I remember them all, was 
Marc Bohan for Dior, Yves Saint Laurent, Givenchy. Ungaro and uh, one more. Is, I'll think of it in two more seconds, of course. And Pierre Cardin. Ah, yes. And the American designers was Bill Blass, Oscar de la Renta, Halston, Anne Klein, and Stephen Burroughs. And at some given point, it became the Battle of Versailles. People, because now it's gonna, they consider it's going to be like a battle. And wind up, we wind up going, and it wind up being what is now known as something spectacular. And it was then, too, because of who showed up, who was there. It scared a lot of the American um, press because they thought we were going to just embarrass ourselves. But in the end of the day, we wind up winning. And I was one of the models at the time that walked that uh, that runway or that stage. It was so much drama. The, the, the designers were fighting among each other. We had forgotten. Uh, Joe Euler was the one who did all the sets, and he wind up doing everything in inches, didn't know it was centimeters. So we'd had no sets. <laughs> the, the, the Europeans did everything. They had they had everything from Nureyev to Josephine Baker. They they I, I thought any minute they were going to shoot somebody out of a cannon. They had everything on their stage. And they took so long, and we had simple just us, the designers, um, Liza Minnelli, and we had the genius of Kay Thompson, who actually choreographed it all. She was so brilliant. So wait, and Liza Minnelli was was performing. She while was. You, she was. She, she yeah. She was performing. She oh, opened wow. the show. And then she closed the show, and they did a performance dance number. So it was really good. Uh, Native New Yorker was our theme. Uh, that? Uh, you know that girl. Uh, you know, yeah. You're a native New Yorker. I mean, there's a the Odyssey version. Odyssey, yeah. 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 Okay, and then then and 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 um, what's our wonderful? Heavy set guy's name that passed away that we all love. Luther Vandross? No, no, the. <laughs> he got thin. He got thin. He got thin. Okay, no, no. I mean. Fats Waller. Oh, um, um, you know, my voice. Oh, it's so funny. I don't. This is no fun. <laughs> you help me. Prince Marky. No, no. Heavy D? No, 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 come. You know who I'm talking about. Now, I was doing so good with names, and now it came to the most important day. You know, everybody, you always said when he played his music, when his song came on, everybody's making love. That, Barry White. Barry White. Barry White. Oh, okay, thank you. Well done, young man. Well done. Okay, Barry White was out. Was out. Hold on, hold on. Barry White. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so we, 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 we won that. We won that battle. Now, HBO, one of your girls you know, I can't remember her name, Maria somebody, she's now working at HBO. She learned about the book. They optioned the book. Now, Ava DuVernay is going to do a narrative. Oh, wow. Wow. Amazing. A narrative on, Incredible. on HBO, Battle of Versailles. You know need to I'm, be cast in that film. Well, no. We, we, uh, well, this is what they have to do. So it's a narrative now, right? So it's a film. 
So Ava knows me from back in the day when she was PR girl. She contacted me and asked me to come in as as a consulting producer. The funny thing about this, and I'm going to say this now, and let's hope and pray it's not true. I don't really remember a lot of <laughs> 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 I got girlfriends that were that check. That <laughs> you could just just rewrite. Don't say anything. <laughs> just rewrite it. <laughs> so, you were the, you're like you can't tell me it didn't happen. I was there. But the funny thing about it is that it's so funny. I said, well, of course I'll help. So they HBO very dum 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 dum. Here's half the money now, half the money. I only got two phone calls from the writer, just two questions. And I'm told by HBO recently, I got a call from the executive saying, where we got the script, I'm going, Ava's never around. How do they get the script? Ava's working, working, working on my fabulous We try to get her on on what's good. Yeah? Yeah. Hasn't happened yet. Oh, yeah. She's good. She'll be good. (laughs) But the fact of it is that that's that's the thing. Um, It's moving right along anyway. So, And that's wonderful. So when you say you never heard of it, it's funny. All those people never heard of it either. It's just popping. Mm-hmm. Now, but, but, but wait, but oh, wait, but but, but this, what's the significance of that event? Well, it, it was more, I, you know. She doesn't remember. Yeah, I do. I do. I do. I, do. <laughs> I just don't remember the airplane ride. No, everybody was partying. I don't remember that. I just remember I stayed in my lane. But the significance of it, when you ask that question, it was significant because when everything is so dry and everything is so white at one point, and you learned about an event that had so many girls of colors in it then it becomes significant. It wasn't exclusively black, but it was so many, because there were a lot of popular girls at that time. We were all runway models. Provide context, because, I mean, you were breaking barriers. You were a leader in terms of diversifying this world that was predominantly or exclusively white. And, I mean, you weren't alone. You you had Iman and you had other uh, models that were, were really uh, pushing the envelope for what the image of beauty in the world was. What was prior to you and what was your point of view as an insider That's looking interesting. out? It's interesting because a lot of people think, you know, now that we have this word fashion and that fashion is so much a part of popular culture, more so than anything else, a lot of people think that this was always, oh, it's such a struggle. It wasn't such a struggle before because there was an agency called Black Beauty. Uh, there were other people who owned agencies in the 70s or in... In the, sev- in the 70s, in the early 80s. I mean, mm-hmm. that all like Richard Roundtree, all those people, they were models and they were part of this agency. So there was always the images of blacks. I never longed for my blackness. I had it. When you started to model uh, back in the late 60s, we were coming out of the civil rights movement too. Where in that frame of time was "Black is Beautiful" was the was the statement. "Black is Beautiful" was important because it really was saying something. And who helped to make that? Were white advertising, young advertising executives who wanted to change the landscape of the advertising industry. Everybody was feeling this feeling. There's this, this current of just style, and blacks really were having that. With the Panthers, everything. There was significant style. And then eventually, you know, it came down that surely people like Beverly Johnson got discovered first time on the cover of Vogue magazine in the 70s. Um, you know, it's interesting to say that because even when Naomi Iman came along, she was so controversial. She came in supposedly out of the bush. Peter Beard, the photographer, discovers her in Kenya tells the world back here that he's discovered this girl from the bush, gets her a contract with Wilhelmina, 
She's not from the bush. She's from a fucking university. Pardon expression. <laughs> you know, she's from a university. But he yeah, made this... Her father whole... was an ambassador. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He's too smart, this Bambito. Um, <laughs> did you just call me Bambito? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> Bambito. <laughs> I'm going to run with it. Yeah, Bob already has 20 nicknames. He does. It's a trick of the tongue. <laughs> so it's so interesting how these things came about, these different uh, these illusions and, 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 and thoughts. But she came into a very controversial scene, too, because she came in and she was announced as this black beauty found in the jungle. And the blacks that were here were, you know, editors and all, were very annoyed with that. They said, you have to go all the way to Africa to find, we got a lot of girls yeah. here. Why, yeah. What's that? So it became, see, it's a controversy within. But in the same time, these girls were being discovered in different ways. And we always had to surround us, you know. We had beautiful, the Essence magazine had started Barbara Cheeseboro with another model who was the first cover. The Essence coming out was brilliant in itself because it, it just, it, there was no other magazine like it, you know. Ebony and, and the Johnson Publications of Jet was one thing. But what what uh, Ebony Essence was was a whole other feeling. It was a lifestyle magazine with a touch of fashion. Did you feel that? That the modeling industry then, and and of course how it integrates into media, was more progressive than the rest of the world. Wow, no, no, because you know what you have to remember something, my love. When we do say that word fashion, it's a tiny little island. It's a little tiny island that no one really cares about, but except for the people who are the players in it. That was then. That's the seventies. That's the sixties. That's the eighties, the nineties. Only now in the two thousands starts seeping midway out in the 2000s and it becomes part of popular culture because before nobody went to a fashion show that wasn't in the industry mm -hmm. then they started inviting important people that were like celebrated people outside then all of a sudden popular culture started happening and people started seeping in and looking then things started changing bloggers you know oh my god we gotta wait because you know Kim Kardashian is coming or we gotta wait because this one's coming you know that's why I fight so hard because I want us to remain ahead of the rest because we should. We're creatives. So that's why I fight so hard because I don't want my industry, my alma mater to be the last man because what's happening in television, they're moving ahead of us. Mm -hmm. What's happening in film, they're slowly, slowly ha they're moving ahead of us. And they shouldn't be ahead of us. We all should be in the same line, running along, you know, jockeying, you know, like I think along the same line, at least being running shotgun with each other. Yeah. Naomi Campbell calls you mom. Yeah. Uh, you were the maid of honor at Iman's wedding. Oh, yeah. And we have someone on the phone who, who also really looks up to you and, and appreciates your worth on, on this planet uh, uh, for the person that you are. Uh, can we punch in our her friend? <laughs> What's happening? Uh, <laughs> you rep Tyson Beckford, <laughs> one of the most famous models, not just in the world, but period. Period. Tyson was good. What's going on, oh, fellas? So cool. Tyson. What's up? You're so sneaky, stretch. <laughs> now I know. I, just, I like that she blames you, not yeah, me, yeah, for yeah. this happening. Because it was stretch. It, it was stretch. Yeah, it was stretch. Tyson, so how, how did you how did you connect oh, with Beth so nice. Um, you, you remember our senior Hall show? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I saw. Um, yeah, uh, duh. So yeah, I saw Kadeem and Son on there, and he was talking about the agency. And this is aired. You know, Arsenio always had some of his best guests on Thursday nights. So it was a Thursday. We saw him, and then we tried to reach out and get with the agency the following week. And then 
uh, we were able to get an appointment to get in, and, and you know they were like, "Look, you know, if you guys can come back, you can see the, you can see the lady herself." So we did, and the rest was history. The meeting for me was interesting, and I want to say this, Bob, because of the fact that he was the girl who first met him at my office. I had hired her, and she was like the underling, even though she had been um, an, a model editor at a magazine of my group. And mm-hmm. they weren't very nice with her. So she took what we don't normally do. We don't take walk-ins. She took the call. She said, no, they don't. She, she, she yeah. said, let, let, me, uh, let me meet with him. And she said, I really like this kid. Because I was trying to support her because the kids around the desk were so snitty. Mm. I said, okay, I'll meet him. It was only because of that fact of who it was. And then I said, okay, I'll meet him. Had no idea. And I, she said, I think you'll really like him. He's got something. He's really a good-looking boy. I said, okay. And I met him. Tyson goes on to be like Ralph yeah, Lauren. But, but people said to me all the time, oh, nobody else would have taken him. And I said, I don't think that. They said, I have friends who tell me, Beth Ann, at that time, they would not have taken him. You took him. But he, he, no, like, nobody else was trying to see him. And then he, he, what was interesting about him is that whenever I see a model, or anyone that's potential, I have to meet with them three times. I refuse to do it. I need to get to know the character. And he just, mm-hmm. he did everything. He said everything right. He was interesting. Because the more you talk with someone, the more you can see their face, their line. So people said, oh, you must have saw, as soon as you saw him, you thought he was the most beautiful. I said, no, I didn't think of him like that. He was like... No, she didn't. I had this little <laughs> white kid named Brent King that it was the, the, the cat's meow to me, and then along came Tyson. And I thought... He does have something, and he said he was such a he was a beautiful boy. So the day we were signing the Ralph Lauren deal, one year or so later, approximately, he was next to me at the desk upstairs in our loft. As we were signing, I looked at him and I said, "Jesus, Tyson, you're a good-looking guy." <laughs> remember that time? <laughs> I remember that. He said. Gee, B, it was, you, it was, you, you it just was, think of that now? It was a few mil on the check, right? It made him a lot better looking. <laughs> good, good point, but no. <laughs> no, it's true. No, no it's true. I, I really did. <laughs> she said, he said, you just, oh he God. said, he said, you just, you just realizing this now, B? He said, that's why I love you. Because it wasn't for anything other than the spirit of his character besides his nice looks. Yeah. It was the spirit of his character, and we went on to do some great work. And I'm very happy you came on the call. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wasn't missing this. Tyson, what's Bethan been like for you as a – I mean, I, I know you know she's a dear friend, uh, a mother figure, all that. But what, what's she been like as a manager for you over the years? She's been everything that, like, you know, that I want in a mother and just everything just, you know, always there for me. And just given has given me such guidance in life and understanding. And you know, since I met her, I've changed. I mean, you know, some of you guys remember me from the neighborhood. I used to be a wild boy. You know, I just I just grown into a calm gentleman. <laughs> you know, and it's just this. You know, just so many things I've learned from her that we don't even have enough time to even discuss. But you know, in in the gist of it all, it's just uh, you know, I grew up around her, and it was just like watching and learning, you know, and just seeing and just opened my eyes to a lot of things in the industry and just a lot of people and, you know, how to react and how to carry myself. And, just, and I, I admit, I was I was a handful. We used to call. But, you know, oh, yeah. she stuck with me and that was it, you know. Yes, yeah, it's very interesting times. But those are good times because 
of like that B-boy, that time frame with everything, you know, him coming along at the time he came along too, helped change a lot of things. Yeah. Recognition and the fact that who was this guy and this red polo that everyone, polo, every boy mm. had a polo shirt. Uh, polo, fragrance, polo, everything, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And here he comes out of nowhere, that big advertising. That w- that helped change a great deal. It was a great thing that R- R- Ralph saw Tyson as being heroic looking. Yeah, and I agree. And he still, somebody still knows his name. That's great, no, guys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, Tyson, thanks for uh, jumping in on this Beth Ann Hardison episode. Much love to you. Yeah, no worries. Cool, Tyson. Anytime, Hope to see you soon. All right, good talking Thank to you. Thank you, Ty. That was nice. Sneaky. That was sweet, yeah. <laughs> that was sweet. Let's see. In 2013, along with Naomi and Iman, you you called out a number of the big design, what would you call them, companies? Yeah, design houses. 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 Yeah. Armani, Prada, Ferragamo, and others um, on their lack of diversity in 2013, which, of course, is is interesting um, in light of the history that you've shared about how, yeah. you know, when fashion was a, a smaller world, it was more diverse. But as it becomes more mainstream, when diversity is even more important, you know, because yeah. of how how young people see themselves represented in, in mass media, there is a, 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 a reversal. That's right. Um, and this was sort of a call to action for you. If you and it's true. It's very true what, what you're saying, because before the world was so much smaller, but once the... Um, Eastern European block went down. Scouts started going into Eastern Europe, bringing girls out of there. Mm. And the difference between that girl and the girl that was existing, whether she be white, black, or Latino, was the fact that she was narrow-hipped, long, not particularly beautiful, glamorous in any kind of way. These girls start to come, and they come in now faster than ever, and they're hardworking. They're coming from poor environments. They're looking to just work and make money. This changed everything because we already had the supermodels, the Naomi's, the Linda's, the Christie's, the glamorous girls, the girls who made it glamorous. Prada, Mutual Prada, decided to switch that up. She wanted to have the girl you didn't recognize. She wanted you to only notice the clothes. That started something that just trickled, like, uh, you know, yellow brick Yellow, yellow brick road, uh, stutter. The white white brick road. So yeah, so that's what wind. Oh, white brick road. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, he's quick. Um, so what wind up happening is we wind up having just a lot of white girls, white girls, and they start to change. They begin to end all diversity. Black girls, you know, Holly. So you didn't see Latin. You didn't see Brazilian girls. You weren't seeing, you know, any girls that really reflected anything other than Caucasian. This went on for a while. And so by 2013, it's like, okay, I'm sitting in my bed in Mexico. I write this this short letter, but it was just boom, boom. And I sent it to two of the people who I consider part of the, the, the diversity coalition and asked their opinion. They said, it's very strong, but I guess it's what we have to do. And so I called out, I mean, a lot of people. But never saying that they were racist, just saying that the whether it's your intent or not, if you keep continue to use one model of color, for two or none for two or three seasons direct and it's the results is racism and that changed things immediately because there are people like Celine who never had used anyone of any color other than Caucasian they switched it up right by the time if their letter went out in September by the time Paris shows happened in October she already had two and three everybody did Amani Chanel everybody started to shift and it's now it's such a huge shift you know people say are you scared that it's going to fall back I'm not scared. I, for some reason, I'm not. I got my foot on the clutch still. 
I'm still, you know, but I'm not afraid. I, I'm thinking this, there's a shift of understanding right now. For some reason right now, the girl of color is being embraced. Now, people are beginning to have a lot of problems. Well, where, where's the where's the, the Asian and the Latin? Well, I'm, I got you. I'm coming. Mm-hmm. But you have to, because <laughs> they've always been in my crew. They've always been who I believe in. Mm-hmm. But in the end of the day, and many model agencies had none. We're doing the best we can. We're moving it as we can. Not everyone is beautiful just because they have color, because God knows. I sit there and go, no, 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 a lot. <laughs> But when there's yay, 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 I'm yay, 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 yay. And don't, I ain't booking a black girl because she's black. I'll sit there with my hands crossed like anybody else. She's got to have, she's got to be competitive to a white counterpart. So that's what's happened now. Our industry is very fickle in a very interesting way. So you haven't been alone in in this fight. No. Um, Who's following in your footsteps? You know, you ask that question, um, and so many people say that. Who will be that person? Who knows? Who's the revolutionaries that really basically, they're called to do it. They're not, like, elected. Right. We don't know who, if if there's going to be someone who's supposed to have it. Maybe the way things are will be so different that they can have a a council, (laughs) you know? It wouldn't be just this one person, blah, 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 because I do have people who, who has my back. You know, I don't name them because it's, then I wouldn't be able to have my spies. You know, you have to have your spies, you know. You have to come from a, a mafia position. And so in the end of the day, I wonder that too, but I, I don't worry about it because I think it, it, the universe will sort of handle itself mm-hmm. in that way. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back with more of Beth Ann Hardison. Boom! Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office right from your home or office. Buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. And the mail carrier picks it up. Very convenient. For a four-week trial, including postage and a digital scale, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in what's good. Hi, I'm Daniel Alarcón, host of NPR Spanish language podcast, Radio Ambulante. We're back with a new season with 36 stories from all over Latin America and the Latino community here in the U.S., from one of the most controversial trials in Puerto Rico's history to the Venezuelan migrant crisis. Listen to Radio Ambulante on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, and it's the drums, the drums, the drums. <laughs> that only means one thing. It is time for the impression session. Well, the drums could mean that Beth is back at the Palladium dancing. But, oh, uh, <laughs> this is the segment where we're just going to play you a track, you react. It's as simple as that. Two tracks, one okay. each. Yeah. Shed, you want to go first? Sure. Okay, I'm going to ask two things. Okay, feeling, first impression? Whatever you want. Whatever I want to say. Yeah. It sounds so Citizen Cope and Gil Scott Heron. Well, you win the award, Citizen (laughs) Cope. (laughs) Confetti, confetti, confetti. (laughs) You're the first first artist 
this season to actually know the the, the record that we're playing. It's never it's never a guessing game, but I, I love. I, uh oh, the headphones are off. <laughs> oh, I'm so proud. Oh, that was so good. That's him. That's Cope. Yeah. And you know what? That is such different Cope. That is such different Cope stuff. I would never hear him talking like that, right? Those lyrics. Well, this is that's not his third album, which became much more. I mean, his first two albums he dealt mostly with personal relationships and love and whatnot, and then his third album was a lot more socially conscious. And of course, this song is about justice and yeah, which and oppression. That? It's called "Bullet and a Target," and again, the the artist is Citizen Cope. Um, I I love this man's music. He's he's a personal friend of mine, and um, and I'm thrilled that that you know. Do you know Cope? You know, you got to know Cope. I stay at his house when I'm in L.A. <laughs> I feel like this wasn't the right song to play. I, mean, I stay at his house, but his music, whatever. <laughs> but 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 it's interesting. No, I, I never heard that. I, it just sounded, I don't know, I don't know all his music either. Well, Cope's a cool dude because he, he, he doesn't make people hear his music when they go to his house. <laughs> <laughs> all right, All right, go ahead. we're going to get one. into uh, another song. This is a song that I selected for you. First impressions. Yeah, this is a song that I don't. Um, it does nothing for me, but it's the kind of song that everyone knows the words to. And she has a voice that sounds like many people, and I have no clue who it is. <laughs> is it? Is it? The group is Build an Ark, and the song is Sunflowers in the in My Garden. Uh-huh. The reason why I played it for you, uh, aside from being a favorite of mine in the last ten years, it sort of. Uh, evokes spiritual jazz it, it yeah. evokes uh, folk music it evokes soul um, but particularly the lyrics I equate the sunflower in my garden as this sort of you know this wonderful creation of the universe it's similar to some of the models that you have managed or models that you have come across I would have to think a- apart from this song that there have been violations of those flowers in the garden. I, I I was actually a model for two weeks with Boss mm-hmm. back in 89. Mm-hmm. And my booker crossed the line with me that, ma- that made me feel very uncomfortable to ever go back there. And it was a power dynamic. Mm. And, you know, I would have to think that maybe perhaps you've, as a mother to a lot of upcoming models, have had to receive that and, and give some level of, of comfort or, you know, we think about what you have done to uh, diversify uh, the face of models. Where else does progress need to be made in that industry? I'm glad you brought that up. Right now, there are people who are, besides the Me Too movement, but it's happened in our industry, the consciousness about what has happened to other young people. I'm very concerned about it. Um, no, true. It never happened to me. And if it happened to me, I probably, <laughs> me and Naomi always laugh about this. We said, we handled it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a 
maybe we went along with it. Who knows? Um, but the fact of it is, is that I never had any of my model. I was so strict as a model agent. I was such. I was. I didn't want to be in that business anyway. And if I'm going to do it, I'm protecting people's children. Mm. Mm. So I came really from. A, they couldn't even go out to clubs. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't let. If I heard a, a, a model of mine was at a club. She'd be in such trouble. Now there's a watchdog. Now because there has been a watchdog and very important um, photographers have been really sad. Same thing with Cosby. Whether people like it or not, people who've done great things, their legacy is wiped. So I don't think after we have something that's happened, being accused Bruce Weber, being accused uh, Mario Testino, um, Patrick DeMarchier, uh, naming... Terry Richardson. Terry Richardson. That right there, to me, tells the rest of our little world, don't mess around. And that will end, I think, in practically all the industries, because now this thing, how it's so radical. It's not like a question. It's like, zip. Now we're all in it together. I want it to stop. I don't want anyone else to be accused. I want it to, because it's changing the industry. I don't want it to be known as an industry that has abuse. We need to recognize it and control it, and that includes the model. Now she's been, she or he has been given a voice. Don't go along with this. Don't keep this a secret. Bless you. Amazing. Applauso, papa. Bethann Hardison, ladies and gentlemen, again. Word up. It's great spending some time with you. you. We've we've never talked at at length like this before, so it's been a it's been a privilege, and and I'm just thrilled that that we can make this happen. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Really a pleasure. That is our show. This podcast was produced by Michelle Lanz, edited by Jordana Hochman and Nigeri Eaton, and our executive producer is Abby O'Neill. Music by composer Ellie Escobar and our own Robertino Garcia. <laughs> if you like the show, you can find more at npr.org or wherever you get your podcasts, including bonus video content on Spotify on Fridays. Thanks to Spotify for their support. While you're at it, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. That's how we know you are listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Stretch and Bob or Instagram at Stretch and Bobito. Word up! Peace! <laughs>